0: This week I read an article about George Scheidler. George Scheidler was an early restoration preacher and he went to hear a man called Brother Kincaid. And Brother Kincaid was a famous preacher. People came from all around to hear Brother Kincaid. As a matter of fact, George Scheidler went from afar to hear Brother Kincaid. And after he heard the brother speak, he became despondent because he couldn't speak and couldn't preach like Brother Kincaid. And he was beside himself for a little while and then he realized, someone has to be the least of all preachers. And he took confidence in this and went ahead and preached for another 15 years until he died at the age of 52. There's good news and bad news in this. I took great courage from it you guys get to listen. <laughs> but as I studied through Paul's letter of the Philippians, I realized that he has very little, if anything at all, bad to say to the Philippians. He starts off by saying, I love you, and you're partakers in love with me, or you're partakers in Christ with me, so therefore you are loving to, to Paul. And the only thing I want you to do is love more. So you're doing great, do more. And I was reminded of the book of Revelation and the seven letters that are written to the churches there and especially Philadelphia, because Philadelphia is the same situation as, as Philippians. He doesn't have anything bad, bad to say to the Philadelphians. He simply tells them that they had great opportunity and they'd used it. They did not deny him and they needed to hold fast similar to what he's going to tell the Philippians. But Paul wrote seven letters that are recorded, or wrote to seven churches that are recorded the same way it's recorded in the book of Revelation. He wrote to Galatia, to Colossae, to Corinth, to Rome, to Thessalonica, to the Ephesians, and to the Philippians. As we studied through Revelation, the first thing I had to make clear to the students, to my fellow studiers, is the importance of the number seven. I know we joke about the seven being the perfect spiritual number, but it is an important number in Scripture. It is the fulfillment, it is the completion, it is the all in all that God is. So when he talks about the seven spirits, the seven fires, the seven eyes, he's talking about his omnipotence his ability to go out into all the world and see all that is happening. And as I'm telling people about this on occasion, I'm surprised at how many elderly Christian men I hear say, I just haven't studied that. It's too difficult. And I will say to you that God gave us the book of Revelation and the book of Philippians for us to understand. He wouldn't have given it to us if he didn't want us to understand it. The idea being we can know and learn and understand these books of the Bible, all of them, from the beginning to the end because God has given them to us to understand. As I thought about the love that the Philippians had and shared with Paul, I thought about our own congregation here and the love that I have For you guys, for us, all together, and what enamored me with the church here, and first of all, the fact that what I call it is supper centric. Our worship centers on the Lord's Supper. That is the most important thing to us. We we make it the bigger part of our service, which it well should be, I believe. But we also have Christ be Christ-like preaching which is is wonderful, it's edifying, and these things are both presented in the book of Acts in chapter 20. They gathered together to break bread and Paul prolonged his talking until midnight. But we give and sing and pray things that are all backed up in Corinthians chapter 16, chapter 14, and other places. And prayer is mentioned innumerable times, both privately and publicly as examples that we have. I was talking with a friend of mine, and he read an article that called these things the five laws of worship. He was incensed, and I was astonished. What kind of lame, check the box, worship is that? I have to go and do these things because that's the law. Where does that match up with the perfect law of liberty, the law of love. Now I do check my boxes sometimes. Come Valentine's Day or birthday, my wife gets a gift, at least a card, because her language of love is gift giving. Mine's words about affirmation. If she says, happy birthday to you, I'll go, mm, thanks. But inside, I'm feeling great about it. Yes, she recognized me. But if I don't give her something, if I just tell her, that's not important to her. That's not the love that she wants to feel. So I try, check my box, to do things that she appreciates because I love her. And that, is it a law that I have to give her a gift? No, I do it because I care, because I want to be pleasing. And this is the same way we should approach our worship. It's not a law. It's not checkbox. We should be commended. We come because we love the Lord. We care about him. These are the things that we do because not because we're supposed to not because we have to, but because we choose to. And I'll say what Paul said. Do more. We love, we care, we want to, but do more. Shine his lights. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Become partakers of the divine nature. But Paul admonished the Philippians, and I had to look real hard to find this, about three times, four, if you count the ones that surrounded him that were preaching from envy and strife for their own personal admonition. And I was reminded by about by that about a man on a donkey, a guy named Balaam he had his box checked. I will only say what the Lord says to me. I can only say what the Lord says to me. And what the Lord ended up saying about him in the long run was he was greedy. He practiced his doing what the Lord said for his own personal gain. He died by the sword, not a sword, the sword. That means God put him to death for what he had done eventually and the lord was so upset with him that he humiliated him by having the donkey tell him that he's not seeing the lord but paul told the galatians excuse me the philippians to be humble that's the idea of fear and trembling he told them not to grumble that's probably the worst thing, the worst admonition he gives them. Do not grumble and complain, Be, do this with joy. And then in chapter three, in verse one, he tells them, finally, which is with all these things in mind, <coughs> brethren, loved ones, rejoice in the Lord. And that refers back to where he had just finished in chapter 2 verses 17 telling him he's going to be poured out like a drink offering but he rejoices in that rejoice with me in that so rejoice in the suffering is what he is saying there and then he goes on to, to say it's no trouble to write to these these things to you again and he didn't write anything about what he says after that in the first of the letter it doesn't refer back to anything. So what can we assume from that? What can we gather from that? If he says, I'm writing to you again, but it's not in the first of the letter, there had to be another letter. It's a good logical conclusion that he wrote another letter to them. We don't have it, but that would have made eight, not seven, and we've talked about that for a minute already. But he says, it's a safeguard for you that I write these things. He's putting a hedge around them. He's protecting them. And then he says, beware. Beware of the dogs, the false circumcision. He's talking about the Jews. And think about it. To call a Jew someone who thinks that they are a Hebrew of Hebrews, as Paul claims that he is, to call them a dog, a Samaritan, that's a horrible insult. And then he gives us a true and false comparison. They are the false circumcision. We are the true circumcision. And by a true and false comparison, there has to be some form of deception. Somebody has to be wrong in this and somebody's teaching something that's wrong. There's a deception involved in this. The Jews were binding circumcision. If you read what happens in Acts 21, Paul's there, there's leaders of the congregation in Jerusalem say, we have thousands of men zealous for the law. Purify yourselves and give a sacrifice. Apparently it was very easy for these two things to work hand in hand. But the Jews didn't have to put away their customs as they became Christians. But the men, some of the men, were binding this. They were saying you absolutely must practice Judaism In order to be a Christian and this is not true because the he finishes up there saying we've written a letter to the Gentiles telling them what they need to do (coughs) they misunderstood the old law and the new law the physical and the spiritual and this goes on even to this very day and I have entitled this lesson, Are you thinking what you're thinking? Subtle thoughts for believers. Why do we do and believe what we do? And how do we come to that conclusion? I want to make a very loose analogy between ancient Near East law, modern law, and Jewish law. I'm going to cover about 4,000 years of history in about five minutes. This is a very high level view. But About 4,000 years ago we have steels, that is stones and clay tablets, that record ancient law. A couple of weeks ago we mentioned the Code of Hammurabi that actually was the first one uncovered and it has a very close resemblance to the book of Exodus. So it has a lot of attention paid to it. But even older than that, we have codes that mention Ishtar. And Ishtar is the gate that was at Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar had built. And Ishtar goes way back beyond Babylon, 2000 years before Christ. And we have codes from Ur. We're familiar with Ur because of Abraham. So we have very ancient codes that have a similarity with all codes. They have a criminal law and they have a civil law. The criminal law is don't kill or you'll be killed, don't steal or we'll cut your hand off, whatever, it's dealing with things that are an affront to people, that hurt other people. That's what criminal law does. The civil law covers things like family, debts, contracts, wages, relationships, things that go on between people. And we have the same thing in this day and age. Think about the OJ case. He was convicted in civil court and had to pay restitution to the family. But in criminal court, he was found not guilty. So we see we have the two types of courts still in this day and age. The Supreme Court is the classic example of civil law. The the word precedent. Every time they put in a new precedent, they've made a new law. Every time something similar comes to what precedent they've set, that law applies. It changes. It's interpolation. It is refurbishing. We're going to make this decision, and this decision carries on until another decision is made that compares with it or overwrites it. It's interpolation and there's a word very similar to interpolation. It's called interpretation. If you look up interpretation in the collegiate dictionary, the first definition is to explain, to tell, to present in an understandable way. The second definition is to conceive according to belief, judgment, or circumstances. There's a big difference in those two definitions. And which one do you think would be closer to the mind of God the way he has presented himself in the scriptures? The clear understanding is the obvious answer. But the old law, I would liken it to the criminal law. And the new law, I'm going to liken it to case law in the ancient Near Eastern style. You know, every analogy has its limits. Obviously, there was case law in the old covenant because the man picking up sticks on the Sabbath. There had to be a decision made. Obviously, God made that decision and told them what it was and in the new law we have criminal law In the new covenant we have criminal law. It's very simple Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself on these two all of the commandments hang We don't need to be told not to kill because that is an affront to our brother It is not considering our brother more highly than ourselves but the difference in the Hebrew law, the laws of the Bible, and the ancient laws, are they include Yahweh in the middle. He's an interactive part of these laws. The other ancient laws, when they mention gods, the god is an authoritarian telling them. He's not in the middle interacting with them and saying, I'm going to lead you. If you don't do these things, I'm going to punish you. So God puts himself in the middle of his law. But the idea that the New Testament is case law, that there are things that can be said that add to that law is not true. There's no interpretation, interpolation of that law the case is closed. Yes, we interp- interpret it. We interpret it according to the law that's given to us. Interpret is the word I'm looking for there. We interpret it according to the law that is given us. We have all we need. We have seven books written to the church at in Revelation and we have seven books that Paul wrote to churches. We have all we need to know. That's what First Peter tells us, is it not? We have everything we need to know for life and godliness. The case is closed. If it's not, Joseph Russell and the JWs, Joseph Smith and the Mormons, and any other Joe has the same authority as Christ. And we know Christ has all authority. He's told us so in Matthew 28, 20. And the authority to write the books of the Bible is given to them When he speaks to his disciples that is his apostles at the Lord's Supper in John 13 through 16 especially 1426 where he says I will have the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit will give to you an understanding and a remembrance of all that I have said And then in 16, he says, and the Holy Spirit will tell you the things that I can't tell you right now. There were some things he couldn't tell them right now because he hadn't been crucified. And the Gentiles hadn't been brought in. So there were other things that were going to be revealed, but he gave them that authority. It's important in James, in Galatians, that James is called an apostle by Paul because that gives him authority. And in 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, as scripture says, and then he quotes Deuteronomy and then he quotes Luke. So he he calls Luke scripture and gives Luke authority to write scripture. He's an apostle, he can say that and we have to believe it because he has the authority that Jesus Christ gave him through the Spirit. But we don't have authority to judge the law. We don't have authority to read between the lines and interpolate. That is reserved for that ancient Near East contract, which is the style that it's written in of the New Testament. It's what's called a suzerain contract. There's no equality in the contract makers. One is superior and says, you will do this. You will be rewarded. Or you will do this and you will be punished. No question. The subordinate, the subject, has no reciprocal agreement. It's told to him what to do. I'll say this. I'm a restorationist. That's my heritage. I believe that the principles of restoration are scriptural. Speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent is a scriptural concept. You can go to Hebrews 7. Moses said nothing about this when he wrote the law. Or you can go to 1 Peter 4.11. Speak as the oracles of God if you're going to speak about God's word. Very, very biblical concept. But it's not above scrutiny. One man wrote an article called The Little Red Wagon. It was how Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone had seen the Little Red Wagon. It was rusted and their axle was bent and the handle was broken. And they went in and they gave it a new paint job and they straightened out the handle and they straightened the axle and put a wheel on it. And they restored the first century church. That's what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees had 613 laws to interpret Scripture. And the first law was let Scripture interpret Scripture. That sounds a whole lot like speak where the Bible speaks, does it not? But Jesus said to listen to them. Listen to them. Don't do what they do, but you listen to them. And I'll tell you this, the church was broken. The church is broken. The church was broken when Luther got hold of it. The church was broken when Calvin got hold of it. The church was broken with indulgences, it was broken with inquisitions, it was broken with presiding elders, it was broken with senior pastors and youth ministers, it was broken in AD 62 when Paul wrote to Corinth, it was broken in AD 95 when John wrote to the churches in Southeast Asia, or, oh, not Southeast Asia, Asia Minor. Sorry guys, That's about messed up my mind there. The only reason then and now that there is any purity in the church is because God, through Christ, sanctifies those who overcome, who have not sold their garments, and who have held fast and kept His Word. But the Pharisees, they had good intentions. The Restorationists have good intentions. If a deer comes in through your door, And your door is open and you close the door behind the deer and kill it you have not worked on the Sabbath but if you open your door and let the deer in and then close the door behind it you've worked on the Sabbath that sounds like a little bit of paint on that red wagon to me don't be walking through your neighbor's field and pick the grain well the law said don't put a sickle to the grain on the Sabbath. Very different, but they rigidly said, don't do this to keep you from breaking the Sabbath. Even the idea of the tetragrammaton, that we can't say the Lord's name because we might accidentally take it in vain. Same idea, but good, honest intentions. And if you think about Paul, he was a Pharisee and he went to great lengths to please God, persecuting the church, putting people to death because he thought that was right. But Paul is warning about something completely different. He's not warning about Pharisees who believed in the prayer and the resurrection. He's warning about Pharisees who would take all authority for themselves, and they would take no responsibility. They would bind heavy burdens and not lift a finger to help. They would tithe mint and cumin, the spices, but they would neglect the big portion of the law, the heart part of the law. We don't need to restore the church. We need to be the church of the first century. And the church is not a building. The church is not a name. The church is not men deciding what our doctrine is. It's not interpolation. We might have the right church, the right doctrine, the right baptism, and be as far away as the Pharisees are if we're teaching church of Christianity rather than teaching Christ crucified. We don't baptize for salvation. Yes, we baptize for the forgiveness of sin and the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But God gives forgiveness, and Jesus Christ adds to the church. And we don't have a church. That would be the bride having a bride. And that gets into some non gender-specific pronouns, and some teaching that's probably easier to understand than what I'm trying to present today. But we don't have a church. It's Christ's church. What we need is to do what we're shown and told. To assemble, to sing, to pray, to worship, and to go and let Christ be in charge of his church. And put no confidence in the flesh which is where Paul ends up in chapter three in verses one through three of the book of Philippians. Why would we put confidence in the flesh? Chapter two, verse three says that God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. We have no reason to have confidence in the flesh, but I'll give you three reason, reasons why we would. Satan is at work to will us to work for his good pleasure and that's kind of more oxymoronic in itself Satan's good pleasure where did he get that he doesn't care about us we get all puffed up Satan I'm such a good Christian he wants to give me he wants to get. satan doesn't care a thing for us he'd put us to death and make sure that we don't serve God in a heartbeat he wants to hurt God he cares not for us that's his only goal is to hurt the one that he rebelled against in Ephesians 6 Paul uses the term the schemes of the devil He took two words, method and trickery, and combined them. This word is not attested to anywhere else in all of ancient language. I don't know if it's just nobody else wrote wrote it down or Paul invented the word. But B, put on the whole armor of God so that you can resist the schemes of the devil. But the devil and his minions are disguised as false apostles. And the devil himself is an angel of light who deceives the whole world. Another reason? We do put confidence in the flesh. Sin is not sin. Oh, well, that's just cultural. No, that happens because we have taken liberty with the ancient Near East contract that God presented to us and decided that we could make it case law, that the case is not closed on. But sin is sin, and culture doesn't change God's word, and time doesn't change God's word. And some will claim that Christ died to do away with all sin. And that's not true. He died for forgiveness of sin, not to do away with all sin. Jude, chapter 1. There is only one chapter. Beloved, verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt, it, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. <laughs> those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord God into licentiousness and deny our only master and king, Lord Jesus Christ. Time nor culture changes the word of God. Nothing changes the word of God. We can't adjudicate or refurbish. The word of God will judge us. John 12:48, the case is closed. Verses 17 through 19 of the third chapter of Philippians. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Paul tells us in Acts 21 in verse 30 and 31, he tells the Ephesian elders, be on alert because from among your own selves, that is the elders of the church of Ephesus, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And keeping in mind, that for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish you even with tears. The same tears that Paul has as he's telling them about men who are enemies of the cross. He's talking about men who are smooth talkers and flattering speech. Romans 16, for such men are not slaves of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the smoothest talker of all is me. I can get away with it. God doesn't mean that. He pleasures in me. He wouldn't do that. He's loving and kind. You go to the doctor. Doctor says, "We need to draw some blood. Got to do some tests." Hey, I'm gonna put the needle in there. Got some alcohol. Got it on discount because it had a little bit of a orangutan blood mixed in with it. But it should be okay because alcohol can can kill that stuff. You let that doctor rub that alcohol on you before he puts that needle in you. If we have any, any sin at all in us. We cannot be apart with God. And if we take any of his word and mix something else in with it, it becomes impure. First Kings thirteen verse eighteen. One of the most unusual passages in the Bible. The false prophet, the prophet from the northern kingdom Samaria tell us the young man of God the man of God the Lord said it was okay for you to come back and have lunch with me 18 says but he lied to him in six verses later in chapter 21 he's put to death the lion fell upon him and killed him he listened to a lie and he died for it and if we listen to lies in spirit we will die spiritually from it There is no joy in suffering. Christianity is an easy street. Easy street is a dead end. And that's what Paul is writing to the Philippians is have unity with me through the joy of suffering and praying Lord, give me a little bit of suffering for your name's sake. And trust me with this. Let me see if I can handle it. That's not the prayer of a first world man. But I prayed that prayer. And I'm sorry I did. Well, not really sorry I did, but the the way he showed me suffering is comparable to what Paul says. And I have the burden of all the churches upon me Well, Paul knew thousands and thousands of people. I may know a hundred. But when my suffering for the Lord's name is caused by a brother of mine stumbling and tearing my heart out, I don't like that. But I have to endure it. I have to do my best to retrieve my brother. Yes, even weeping. But I will pray that prayer. I will pray it again. I want to know nothing but Christ crucified. And being a one talent preacher like George Schindler, just knowing one thing should be easy. But Christ crucified is a great big story and that's the story we need to be telling. You have a part of my heart, a part of my soul, and anybody that comes through that door will receive the same thing. I want nothing but to see their soul saved, and the only way to do that is to teach Christ crucified. I haven't said much about our theme, I've mentioned it one time. But Paul is calling on them to be unified, to be joyous, to rejoice. What are you thinking? Are you thinking what you're thinking? Or are you deceived? Are you teaching the doctrine? Or are you teaching Christ crucified? Are you teaching Christ? Are we teaching Christ? Brethren, I have nothing else to say. Let's sing.